This episode is brought to you by McDonald's. Not sure you've heard of them. <laughs> Up and coming uh, little restaurant, but they're making it. They're the little engine that could. You know, the moment of bliss when you spot your fries being scooped into the carton and suddenly time slows down. I have that all the time. I love their fries. Oh, yeah. yes. McDonald's fries hit different when they're free. That's another thing I'll tell you. And when they belong to your friends, there's no better feeling than thinking you're out of fries and then you discover extra fries at the bottom of your bag or else my son still hasn't finished his fries yeah. and I'm done with mine. And uh, he used to be weaker than me so I could just take them. Yeah. Now I can't because he's stronger than me. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's no wrong way to eat McDonald's fries, but we all think our way is the best way. And I like stealing them from someone else. That's my favorite <laughs> way. Get your favorite McDonald's fries today. McDonald's, check them out sometime. They're everywhere. Mother's Day is May 12th. And in advance, Sona, happy Mother's Day. Oh, thank you, You're Conan. a terrific mom, and your kids are here today with Did us. you get me a present? I'm Well, it's not May 12th yet, but oh. I'm getting you one. Okay, thank yeah. you. Well, guess what? Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for mom easy this year. You can shop by price category or browse curated gift lists ranging from for the mom who has everything to the gifts that are already wrapped and ready to be gifted. I, I like when you can so go by easy. price because I can go right down to the bottom. Oh, <laughs> Get lines of something for a dollar. Sorry, baby. Oh. <laughs> Top gifts include Beats headphones, digital photo frames, Polaroid cameras, and the Samsung smart TV, The Frame. Oh, yeah. Shop now at Macy's.com slash gift finder. And happy Mother's Day, moms. My name is Howard Stern. What is this? A piece of paper. My name is Howard Stern, and I feel blank about being Conan O'Brien's friend. Well, first of all, there's no blank here. We're not friends. We're this not is friends. the problem That's the that problem. I have with you. Yeah. That uh, a friendship would imply that we've actually had a conversation off the air, or maybe a dinner, or maybe some sort of phone conversation. So, in other words, hi, my name is Howard Stern, and I feel badly about not being Conan O'Brien's friend. I feel you would be a great friend. But, you know, I'm intimidated by anyone with a Harvard pedigree. Fall is here, hear the yell, back to school, ring the bell, brand new shoes, walking blues, climb the fence, books and pens, I can tell that we are gonna be friends. Yes, I can tell that we are gonna be friends. Hey there, this is Conan. Uh, welcome to Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. The uh, the podcast, it's really a scam more than anything else where I uh, get people I just really want to talk to to hang with me and have conversations I've always wanted to happen. So far, I'm loving it. And I'm joined by my trusty assistant, Sona Mosesian. Hey, Sona. Hi. And of course, uh, our uh, terrific uh, engineer, uh, producer, I don't even know what to call him, Matt Gorley. Hi. So, uh, you doing okay today, Matt? You all right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. He's got a cough in his throat or something. Uh, Sona, you're wearing a uh, T-shirt today that says, what's it say? Uh, sh I, what does I it say? I completely forgot I was wearing this. What does it say? It says, surprise, I'm drunk. Surprise, I'm drunk. Okay. <laughs> Does your parents, do they, did you see your parents today? I did not. No, okay. I wouldn't have worn this to see my parents. It's, How, 
Yeah. Okay. They'd be cool with it, though, wouldn't they? they know no. You. No, they wouldn't be cool with it. Surprise, okay. I'm drunk. Right. No. Okay. I'm not, though. No, you're not. You're you're doing all right so far. You're doing, <laughs> it's early. It's early still. I forgot I was wearing this. This episode is going to be different. Um, I think they've all been a little different, but this is a supersized episode of Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. This is a long one, and I think it needs to be. I just this moment flew back from New York City where I was interviewing this gentleman in his uh, serious uh, XM studio. And so if the quality is a lot better than mine, you'll know why. They've got real microphones there. Anyway, <laughs> of course, he's the long-reigning king of all media. He has a new book out called Howard Stern Comes Again. He has, of course, many, many, many fans. He inspires strong feelings for those people who probably are like, no, no, I, I don't know about Howard Stern. He's not my cup of tea. I will say this. Whatever you're feeling, I have always found him to be an incredibly original mind, curious, razor sharp, funny, and I have long considered him to be the best interviewer in the business. He is naturally curious. He's voraciously curious. And I've been lucky to speak to him on a few occasions and really felt like we connected. So I was thrilled that uh, he agreed to let me talk to him for this interview. Ladies and gentlemen. Howard Stern. You really but, aren't, uh, are you? But you're, you're, not, you're not. The Harvard thing doesn't bother you, for real. No, I, I'm very envious of that. I wish I had that kind of intelligence. I wish I had that ability to understand math and and uh was a better writer even uh, the english uh, the command of the english language i feel people who go to harvard are privileged but let me try my best my name is howard stern and i feel aroused about being conan o'brien's friend i'm actually three inches hard right now i can see all full three inches let me show you see it I can see it from here. No, I'm excited about uh, being your friend. You know, I... There's we, potential here. We've talked... I think there's great potential here. <laughs> there really is. There really there is. There really is. And uh, maybe the fact... Maybe the fact that there's potential is because no one's tried to force it yet. Right. No, this is a thing We've both been in the business. I mean, you've been in the business a lot longer than I have, but I've been doing my thing for about 26 years now. And I think the fact that uh, I didn't push it, I didn't show up and say... Hey, Howard, man, what about me? What yeah. about me? You would have hated me if I had done that. You're a beautiful guy that way. First of all, let me ask a couple of questions before we start this ah. thing. I mean, I know we're into it. Yeah. This is it, by Question, the way. This is it. We're, this is in, it. we're this doing is a podcast. Yeah. This is podcasting. This might be my first podcast, I think. No, nah, I can't be. Yeah, I've never done one. You before. haven't done Mark Marin? No, I haven't done Mark Marin. That guy would I don't be like, think I have. You know, this is weird. I turned to, I was doing the show the other day, mm -hmm. radio show, and um, when I'm doing the show, uh, during the commercial breaks, the guys come in and you had just been on my show. And, yeah. I, and I said to uh, the guys, I said, um, <laughs> you're going to hate this story. I said to the guy, you know, Conan is such a great fucking guest and such a great guy. I mean, every time he's on, it's just great. Yeah. And I said, you know, it's weird that I've never done his television show. I never, ever did it. I should have done it. We might've had some great chemistry. And then Gary goes, oh, you did do his show. Yeah. And I went, Really? 
I did Conan's show. I go, I assure you I'd remember that if I had done it. Well, sure enough, they had to prove it to me by showing me on your show. I had no fucking recollection of it. I don't remember so much when when uh, Jerry Orbach died. I remembered saying to someone, you know what? I love Jerry Orbach. Wasn't he great? I wish, and we'd had him on the show a few times. I wish I had had a chance to do like a serious cop scene with him. Right. And the person said, you did. And I said, no, 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 no. I, I swear to God, if I, I had had it, if I had done that, right. I would know. And I said, I mean a real great face-to-face cop scene. And the person said, I think it was Frank Smiley, he said, you did. He left the room. He came back in. He put a big three-quarter inch machine in. I shot a whole scene on the set of his oh cop God, show really? where he shoved me up against a wall and was like, you punk. And it was this, it was a comedy bit, but we played it real. He's inches from my face. And I had told someone, if only that had ever happened to me. And I did it. So, but you've been doing this so long that you, have, right. you have tons of that. I know. I, I, in fact, Gary's biggest job is to remind me of what I've done. I, when, even when I set out to write this book, yeah. I'm like, uh, Gary, you need to be there the first day I'm going to tape stuff. I'm going to talk into a tape recorder. You've got to remind me of what I've done. Right. And now people wouldn't understand that, but I realize doing... You know, going on the Conan O'Brien show, going on the Tonight Show, right. going, doing all of these incredible things I've done never struck me or touched me in a way. I didn't allow them to. And I guess I was just kind of plowing through my life. I was doing whatever I had to do to make a living, but not really allowing for these moments to be big. Because other people would say, oh, that's such a big moment. But right. it didn't feel, it, it's not an arrogance. It's not me being an asshole. It was just me going, oh. You know, it's just one more thing I have to do. You know what it is, too? It's volume. I'm telling you that when you've had, I mean, your job is to meet a different person or person comes in every day, you talk to them. Right. And you're in it in that moment. You've also had these moments where you've been in New York, premiere of your movie, massive crowd. But you're in that moment and you are, for you, in that moment, you're getting through it. I'm just getting through it. In fact, when I wrote my first book, there was this weird thing that happened. I said, I got on the air and I said, hey, I'm going to show up at Barnes and Noble uh, and I'm going to just go sign some books. And because I had done it impromptu like that, the police didn't real, they were just kind of aware that I was going to Barnes and Noble, but there were no barricades set up or anything like that. And if you ever see this footage, if you look it up on the internet, I'm in this crowd, people lifted me off my feet. It was, it was nuts. Right. And afterwards, someone said to me, Oh my God, that must have been something. And I and I realized I was like, oh, it was just an exhausting day. It was very tiring. I did the radio show and then I had to sign like ten thousand books in one sitting. It wasn't like I was impressed with myself or thinking that like somehow I was the greatest thing on earth. I mean, just the opposite. I was like, oh God, I got to go home and figure out what can I do tomorrow to merit that kind of praise. Hey, I'm thinking of a couple of things. Number one, yeah, when we started the podcast, we shook hands, so I got to. Yeah, I got to put some. Uh, well, I, I'm telling you, you really should. I got to put some. Uh, what do you call this? Jism. On you my call hands. it. Uh, there's I no can... reason to go blue. There really is no reason to go blue. It's a purel. It's purel. I couldn't think of it. My wife and I call that jism. Oh, you do. Yeah, we go. Hey, do you? I go. Do you have the jizz in your pocketbook? Those are the lovely little things a couple has over time. <laughs> yeah, I'm so witty. This <laughs> you can't. <laughs> what a genius! Oh wow, he calls Purell jism. And then the other thing I'm thinking: Are people listening? Do you have any indication if people are listening to your podcast? This uh, podcast is millions. Is uh, no, God, no. I don't no. think there are millions in podcasts, but no. it is doing extraordinarily well. How do we know this? 
we know it because they tell me, oh, you're like the number one comedy podcast oh. in, you know, the podcast space. Oh, nice. Now, that's including some people call their eh, podcast a comedy podcast, but is it really comedy, you know? And, and you know what I've noticed, too? What? Down to them sitting here, you have a very different approach on the podcast. Like, when I see you on the show, on the mm -hmm. TV show, you're kind of like this. I, more so. I used to be more that way. Right. And You've this changed. Is, this is something that happens. This is what I wanted to talk to you about. Right. And this is my clever way of turning it back on you. Good. Uh, because no one wants to hear about me. You, in this new book, you do something that I, I think might be uh, unnecessary. Go ahead. I would say this as your therapist. Good. You, denig you denigrate your old work. You put it down and you say, I'm so embarrassed of some of that. And I'm... I love this new way that I am now, but you you have a kind of disdain or embarrassment about your old work, and I'm telling you that's not necessary. And I'm telling you that as a potential good friend of yours, I think that's the wrong tack to take. No, you know what it is? I'm, first of all, you know, I mean, I don't know that you have this, but most people, when they look at old pictures of themselves, I look at old appearances on Letterman. People say, oh, Howard, your appearances on Letterman were legendary. Mm-hmm. I can't watch them. I cringe. My delivery is different now. My ad, I'm, I'm an older guy. Right. You know, I'm 60 fucking five years old, and I look back at 30-year-old Howard on David Letterman, and I go, yeah, I see me working a little too hard, a little too desperate, not owning who I was. I critique it. Yeah. I can't go back and watch old uh, radio shows, uh, you know, when we did them on TV, mm -hmm. you know, we, we, we did them simultaneously. I can't go back and watch that stuff. It, there's no shame or embarrassment. I was trying to entertain an audience. Right. I was trying to make people laugh who were stuck in the miserable existence of commuting. And, and I was successful at it. I had one out of every four cars in New York tuned into me. I can't say that that's not a great accomplishment. Although I would sit there and look at it and go, why are the other three not tuned into right, me? Exactly. You know? so, yeah. so in the midst of all of this and, and some reflection, it's not that I'm apologizing. I'm not apologizing for my work. I'm just saying I'm a different guy now, and it's painful for me to go back and look at that stuff. I relate to that. I have some of young comedians now tell me, oh, I grew up watching you and the weird stuff you did late at night, and you did a thing in 93 or 94 or 95, and I'll say, what are you talking about? I was horrible then. Right. I can't look at it. I don't, and, if, and if someone's playing any of that stuff from that era, I can't be in the same room Right, and um, it's not a shtick. You're saying, no, hey, no, it really is painful. It's painful, and so I, I understand that. But I, I want to say this to you as your therapist now. I've heard you many times. In fact, you've told me. You tell me, you, this is why I love my the interview I did with you. Yeah. You've said to me, you know, the reason I stayed with NBC and I didn't take that offer from Fox, mm -hmm. you could have gone up against Jay Leno. Mm -hmm. would have been a very different sort of history. Sure. Your, your driving force wasn't money. The driving force was you wanted to at least have access to your archive of material. Yes. So that you had it all. Yeah. And when you were talking about that, I said, you know, be careful what you wish for. I, when CBS sued me, Les Moonves sued me personally, at the end of it all, I ended up owning my archive. I own everything I ever did, in, which is a tremendous comfort to me. Yes. But also it's a tremendous curse because some of this stuff now, when we go back, we have to go listen to it because we want to put it on our radio channels here at Sirius. And, oh my God, some of it I listen to, I don't want to hear this on the radio again. And I don't, I, I, I wish I could just burn this shit. And it's not that it's bad or it's, it's just not me. And it, it's not you now. That's right. But you're you now because of what you did 
in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And that's the thing that, that's the only thing I wanted to come in right away. I almost felt like I was on a mission to say, there was a time when in show business, everything felt very manufactured. When you came along and you were alienating people and you were going at them, and occasionally I was on the receiving end of it, I still thought this is great. This needs to happen. This is someone who has been told by a... First of all, I have a thing with publicists where someone will come to me and I'll read the notes that they've, they've talked to the person beforehand. And the person will say, tell this me this amazing stuff on the notes. Right. And I'll say, I can't wait to talk to this person. And then I get out there and the music's playing. And one of the second producers will come up and lean in my ear and go, uh, cut out one, two, and three. And I'll be like, what are you talking about? That's the best stuff. <laughs> and they'll say, no, the publicist is here. Right. The publicist killed it. The person likes it, but the publicist killed it. Because Crazy. it's a little, and I, one of the things that you did was publicists would say, Howard can't ask about A, B, or C. I wouldn't let him in. And that would be the first thing that you would ask them. Right. Now, sometimes they would walk out, but it was compelling. You were the only person doing it. And I think you have no perspective on how that was important. I do have some perspective, and I'll tell you what my perspective is. I was like a guy coming up from the gutter. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, I was in Nowheresville radio. I was working at WRNW and then I had to go to Hartford, Connecticut. I mean, I really had to play all these markets and work out my, my thing. And what was always my universal truth was that radio was really dull and could be a great medium. It could right. be phenomenal. It could be so instantaneous that people would, people on television would be jealous that they didn't have a radio show. That was my sort of core value of doing this thing. Um, I really believed in the medium of radio. The problem was the people doing it. I remember being on the radio in Washington, and I would tune in the local uh, WTOP in Washington was the all-news station, but they had opinion shows. But who had the opinion? People in the audience. The hosts would not give their opinion. Yeah, It was all very straight. And so when I got into radio, I felt like I was like the version of punk rock. Fuck you. Fuck everything. I'm going to be unleashed dead. I'm The interesting experiment would be, could I just blow you away by letting every dark thing out of my mind? Happy thoughts, sad thoughts, you name it. Don't really analyze it. Right. Just say it. Right. And it is such a dangerous act because it's like walking a high wire. I could have at any point been fired for anything I said. I could have offended 50 people who I probably, when I get off the air, said, oh, shit, I really don't even want to say that. That was a thought I should have kept to myself. But I just did it anyway because I thought that process would be revolutionary. Yeah. I thought it would be like mind-blowing. Yeah. You're driving in your car and there's this lunatic who's saying everything that perhaps we think but no one will say out right. loud. Right, And that was my approach and I make no apology for that. Uh, the problem is it wreaked havoc on my personal life, on everything in my life. I, right. It wreaked havoc. And also it didn't even allow me to be fully honest in a way because – I went to negative, dark places, and that's what I describe in the book about Robin Williams. Yeah. I mean, I love Robin Williams. The arrogance of me to think that Robin Williams can't come in on my show and deliver some sort of interesting, funny thing that the audience would stay tuned for. The only thing that was any good was me. He doesn't get my audience, and I have to just – that's just – that just sucks for me. Right. And so the reason I, I wrote this book is because I thought, well, what is it I'm really proud of? I came over to Sirius XM – 
Everyone expected me to just interview strippers and have women naked running in here. Maybe people even fucking. I don't know what they expected because here there are no rules. It is the Wild West of radio. Yeah. I could do whatever I want. I could talk about, you know, people eating each other's assholes out for four hours. And that's what I think everyone expected. But I looked at this as like a weird, unbelievable opportunity. Here's what I thought. I am such an outsider. I am a pariah. Publicists don't want to bring their guests in on my show. But wouldn't it be interesting now, because I'm that guy, what if I could get really great guests, people who have accomplished things, to open up and have a conversation with me? And because I have no limitations in terms of what I do, I could do an hour, an hour and a half, however long that person would sit there, and we could just keep it as real. It would be like if you got invited to a dinner party and I showed up and there was Gwyneth Paltrow sitting there, what would this this guy who you listened to for years say to Gwyneth Paltrow? Could it be interesting to hear a real conversation? And the answer was yes. And so when I wrote the book, I said, what a great summer read. A collection of these conversations that I've had with people some of them are really deep. Yeah. I don't think anyone expects that. The reason I chose you for my favorite interview in the book, and people were, David Spade still can't get over it. He's very upset. <laughs> <laughs> Spade's like, oh, go talk to your best friend. He texts me every night. Are you talking to your best friend, Conan? I go, listen, Spade, I don't even know Conan, really. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. said we had a moment on the air yes, yes. that was so fucking incredible to me. Yeah. Not, maybe not to him, maybe not to anyone else in the audience. But I have never heard a better talk show guest. You came in and we got into a conversation. You opened up with a story about Bill Cosby and what you had done in Harvard to get this award. (laughs) That was one of the funniest, best stories I heard on a talk show. And then suddenly you said something and I heard something in your voice. And we started talking about that you suffer from depression. And you were so raw and honest about it that I thought this is like if I did have a dinner with you and and there were no microphones there. And I go, oh my God, Conan, I had no idea you suffer from depression. I didn't know how upset you were. In this day and age, people don't think of you as a human being. They right. see some guy on TV. Right. Let's attack him. Let's call him a fucking asshole. You know, all the trolls on Instagram or wherever it is with yep. social media. Some guy sitting in his basement hasn't taken a risk, hasn't said, fuck it all. I'm going to go. You had a Harvard education. You could have been in a very safe job. But no, you took a chance because you wanted to entertain people. At the end of the day, I don't think you were looking at being rich. I think you really wanted to make people laugh. True, yeah. And so when I sit down with you and I can somehow create a vibe where maybe we forget the microphones are here, you can't fully. It's never going to be the most full, honest conversation, but it's the closest that I can get to you. And sit down and hear about this incredible climb, how you, you, know, how you wrote for people, how you got this break and you go on TV and then after you go on TV, oh my God, everyone wants you off the air. You couldn't even get a 13-week fucking cycle contract from NBC. Every day it was like Conan's going to be fired. I had forgotten that until you brought it up right now. Yeah, I didn't want to. I'm depressed. But but this is an incredible story and to hear (laughs) you talk about it in front of millions of people, in a way, the art of conversation is dead. Like, yes, everyone has a podcast and yes, everyone's talking to everyone else, but where can you congregate in front of millions of people and have a real conversation. And yeah, I'm going to ask people, you know, fucking weird questions. But you see, to me, the mistake that people can make is they can think that the strippers and the vibrators and 
the little people, that that represents pushing the envelope. And what they don't understand is, yeah, sometimes it can, and there was probably a time when it did, but at a certain point, sitting down and having a real conversation with someone is edgier than if you had 65 strippers come in here right now and eat each other out. Right. What you're doing, and it's, I see this mistake all the time. People will start a new late night talk show and they want it to be edgy. And I've had some of them come to me for advice and they've shown me, I had a, someone show me tape of their new show and they had just taped a pilot and it was just them coming out, hard rock music. <laughs> they come out, they spray paint all over the wall. They kick something over. <laughs> they, uh, they're wearing half a leather jacket. They're, uh, there's no form. They interview someone in the audience, then they throw cream pies, then someone interviews them, then <laughs> shit comes down from the ceiling. And I look at it and I said, it doesn't feel edgy. It doesn't feel revolutionary because you're not, the funniest thing in the world is give someone restraint. You need to create restraint. You need to create, uh, it's how engines work. You make a confined space and then you create all this energy and it's got nowhere to go and it pushes the car forward. Stupid explanation of how an engine works, by the way. But I don't know anyway. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, <laughs> you need what you have here where we're sitting right now is a small space, few distractions. And if you can get a person there, you can get them to really open up. That to me is edgier, but you Absolutely. need to, but you need to set the rules first. Like a basketball game is exciting because there's a court and there's two nets and people have to play by the rules. You just hit into the essence of this book because here's what my thought was. When I was on terrestrial radio, I had the government and I had religious groups after me every single day. And, um, you know, I was a horny young man and I want to see naked women. But the real thing I was also thinking is, wow, look at the response I'm getting. It's almost like when you nag your parents for a toy when you're a kid. And as long as you nag, you become the noisiest kid in the room and you eventually get what you want. Right. I thought it was unbelievable. Like I was this revolutionary kind of guy who was sitting there and going you don't you say nudity is bad you fucking hypocrites you say that um, sexuality is bad fuck you i'll do whatever i want i was like a tantruming child and uh, you know you pick the space that you're in to come to satellite radio where you can do everything and do that is just utter horseshit it's nonsense who cares at least i was railing against something the government was fining me i was the bad boy of radio Re- religious groups were screaming. They would send out newsletters. You must send money. We have to get Howard Stern off the air. Of course, I, I would go on the air and say, just send me the money directly, and if you give me enough money, I will get off the air. Right, right. But, you know, it was kind of like, that was terrestrial radio, and that was then. I'm on satellite radio. I could have strippers running around nude here every day. I mean, sitting and having a conversation with someone like, even Gwyneth Paltrow walked in. And in the old days on terrestrial radio, I just would have been like, hey, you know, do you, do you give your husband, um, do, you, do you ever blow your husband? Do you blow your husband a lot? Do you like to give fellatio? Do you blah, 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 blah? Okay, you could say that's uh, something. But the person runs out of the room. They don't answer the question. And as I point out in the book, when I was talking to Gwyneth Paltrow and we were having this deep conversation about what it was like to win an Oscar, and I was talking about the death of her father and. We're just going, we're going all over the place with other people in Hollywood about how Brad Pitt confronted harvey weinstein on her behalf Mm -hmm. which is just fucking great to hear about and to put brad pitt in a whole new thing and then she goes you know sometimes when i'm arguing with my husband it's and her husband's chris martin coldplay and she goes sometimes it's just easy to blow the guy 
Now, that is way more satisfying to me because it's yeah. coming from her. Right. I, I'm not forcing this woman into a weird dialogue and just pounding her with, with sexual questions because it'll titillate the audience. I feel way more satisfaction sitting and talking to, um, I, I'm thinking about Amy Schumer. Mm-hmm. Amy Schumer, really funny person, uh, great stand-up. I love her stand-up. And we're talking, but she'd written a fairly serious book. And she educated me that day. She said to me, you know, everybody wants rape to be perfect. And it stopped me in my tracks. I go, what do, yeah. you, what do you mean by that? Because I was thinking about all the guys in my audience listening to this who really need to hear it. Right. And I said, what do you mean by the perfect rape? She goes, well, the perfect rape is the police come. You've been raped in an alley by four guys. And, uh, you know, they take a semen sample and the whole thing. That's the perfect rape. Everyone can get behind that and maybe even bring it to court and all that. But the real problem is, in her case, she opened up about, hey, you know, I was with my boyfriend, and we were messing around, and then he just got on top of me. I, I hadn't given him the green light. I hadn't mm-hmm. given him the okay. Right. But well, who is I going to complain to? In a way, they're going to say, well, you were naked. You were in bed with him. No. And you know what? Guys need to know that. Guys need to know. I swear to you, I've said this on the air. If you're inside a woman and she says, get out. You get the fuck out. Right. You know, it's just the way it's got to be. It's the way we have to evolve. So, no, where else can you go surfing and skiing the same day, huh? I don't know. Or check out a world-class art museum and then camp at a dark sky sanctuary that night, huh? Uh, yeah. Yeah, where else can you hike through Redwoods and then get a luxury spa treatment? Where? Well, you live there. California. <laughs> California Sona, no matter where California. you go across the state, you'll find a way to play. I'm a California resident. So are you. Sona, you are a lifelong California resident. I'm a lifer. I love this place. This is a beautiful state. Gorgeous. So many different, wonderful ecosystems in one state. You can hang out by a Palm Springs pool. You know, you can go whale watching. You can go hiking in Yosemite. And then uh, talk about the great cities in California. You get all this amazing food, sushi, whatever you want. They got it in California. Hey, if you can't find it in California, man, you got a problem. Yeah. I shouldn't have done that. I made that up on my own. Anyway, I love California. Discover why California is the ultimate playground. Head to visitcalifornia.com to start planning your trip today. it's incredible to have the flexibility to work in all sorts of places, whether it's taking video calls from the park or emailing large files while you're grocery shopping. Sona, this is good for you. Is it? Because you're always doing whatever work you do for me from fun locations. But I like blaming it on not having reception. I know, but you can't do that here. Working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network, which is why you should check out T-Mobile, Sona. Okay. Then you got no excuses. They're America's largest and fastest 5G network. With T-Mobile, you'll be covered in more places with the 5G speed you need for your life on the go. Plus, they also cover more highway miles with 5G than anybody else. Check it out if you don't believe me. Hey, Blay, you've got T-Mobile, right? I do. I was actually just up in the woods in Idlewild. It was fantastic for the weekend. And uh, my T-Mobile didn't miss it. My T-Mobile phone didn't miss it. You know, I wouldn't think you'd need a cell phone because you speak so loudly into a microphone. (laughs) Well, I had to look some stuff up. Just take it. Just take it down. I didn't know what brunch was. I can hear him. When the restaurant's open for brunch. Okay. uh, So I used uh, my T-Mobile coverage to check out brunch. That's right. 
Anyway, wherever you are, you know, take it from the loud speaking Blay. If you're on the go, you want to be in the know, you want to make the show. What? Uh, T-Mobile. Okay. That's the one for you. That was I should weird. have rhymed it with go. Anyway, <laughs> find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. Fastest based on median overall combined 5G speeds according to analysis by Ookla of Speed Test Intelligence Data Q3 2023. C5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. way in today, Sona, I was thinking about just how much has changed over the years. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, we were all dancing the jitterbug and the Watusi. Okay. And then you grow up now and there's mosh pits and everything's gone <laughs> cuckoo. There's this new thing called rap. I don't know what's happening anymore. But guess what? In a world full of change, there's one thing that hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. The great taste of Miller Lite. Are you with me on oh, this? Oh, yeah. I'm right there with you. Yeah. And you know, another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. Yeah. I hate a filling beer. Yeah. When I have a filling beer, I just want to sit down in a beanbag chair for six days, but not oh. with Miller Lite. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? Mm-hmm. Back in 1975, the big debate in America was what's more important, that it it's less filling Miller Lite or it tastes great. Yeah. The cool thing is when we all realized it's both. Okay. It's less filling and it tastes great. Yeah, all right. Everybody wins. Everybody wins. Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality. Great taste. Only 96 calories. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and it's less filling. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com slash Conan. Or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Yeah. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer. Okay, we're back with Howard Stern. But those kind of conversations to me are way more satisfying. And and I that's why I like this, this I mean that's why I said and maybe what you were saying before was addressing that that I you know I should be proud of everything in my career. But but this is what I'm most proud of. These right. conversations. I, I mean, when I'm talking to John Stewart, who I think is terrific, you mm-hmm. know, I, I don't know if you know him personally or not. Yeah, yeah. Not not super well, but yeah. Yeah, I don't know him personally at all. And yet, this in a similar way, like when I spoke to you, I was like, oh, I just wish I knew Conan. Conan just seems so evolved. John had come in the day that Louis C.K., John was throwing a charity benefit. He does mm-hmm. it every year. He booked a charity benefit. Louis C.K. is the is one of the guys on the lineup. Right. The whole situation had just broken with Louis C.K. and all these sexual allegations. John was going around promoting the charity event. He's on something like the Today Show. When he was on the Today Show, they're hammering with questions. How can you have Louis C.K.? Why are you having Louis C.K.? Why da, 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 da. He, was, he was frazzled. Comes in on my show and he sits down on the couch and we start talking about that because I'm friends with Louis C.K. too. I know Louis really well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was going through the same thing. What is my relationship with Louis? Why do I, you know... So John starts sitting down and going, man, and this is, you know, this is the book. This is why the book is good. It's not anything about me. It's about other people. Right. This is the first book I've ever written that's about other people. John sits down and starts to do a self-analysis. He calls it rabbying it out. Right. And he goes, if I had known Louis was doing that, would I have spoken up? Would I have said something to Louis? 
Would I have said something out loud? How do I feel about Louie doing that? How do I? He says, you know, I didn't know in that moment on the Today Show how I felt about Louie doing the show. I didn't know how to answer. He goes, why do people assume I have the answer? I don't. I need to think things through. And then why did I feel close to him in this conversation? If I, if I had been anywhere having this conversation, this is the conversation I'd want to have with him if I was a Hollywood insider and I could be at a party with Jon Stewart. We started talking about how everybody, when he was doing The Daily Show, how everybody in the audience, uh, the right-wing audience, the Fox News guys, mm-hmm. whenever they wanted to get at him, whenever they wanted to attack him, they'd go, uh, yeah, that John Leibowitz. They'd start calling him by his birth name, John Leibowitz. Mm-hmm. And I'm a Jew, and he's a Jew, and we know exactly what the fuck that means. Right. They're trying to shame you for being a Jew, right. motherfuckers. And when John said it, I felt closer to him than, I don't know this guy. And somehow, we're able to get rid of the microphones and start talking about this shit, anti-Semitism and the crap that he's felt. And then the truth be told, he goes, this is what's so great. He says, you know why I changed my name from Leibowitz? You might think it was because I was ashamed of being Jewish or it wasn't a showbiz name. He goes, it was my mother's maiden name. My father had abandoned me. I didn't want to be John Leibowitz. I didn't want any of the Leibowitz name. I took my mother's maiden name. You know, that's that's the power of the book. And I think... The power of the book reflects sort of what that, that story you just told. My experience is that we have a culture where people have to decide quickly who you are. Right. And so they put you in a box very quickly. So Howard Stern represents a certain thing. And maybe I represent a certain thing. And John Stewart represents a certain thing. And they don't know that you're a person. Right. And so when I go to my, my therapist, there are so many times where I'm talking about the ways in which I've experienced pain or hurt or a sense of betrayal or just, just life, the stuff that everybody feels. And there are so many people that I think, do you turn into a two-dimensional, like a, like a sticker, like an emoji? They turn, because you're rich. I'm rich. We're rich. Shut the fuck up. And they don't understand how you got there. They don't understand what you did to get there. They don't understand anything about your life or how complicated it may be. They just know that that's Howard or that's Conan or that's John Stewart. Fuck them. <laughs> you know, you and bring I, up an interesting thing. Just saying I'm rich. Yeah. It's like, that is such a fucking problem for me because I get so angry when someone says, you're so lucky. What do you have to be miserable about? You're rich. Yeah. I go, do you know, you know, what do you think? What am I? A Kennedy? Somebody just handed me a bunch of fucking money. Dude, I, how do you defend yourself and say, because you're saying you're rich like you, you didn't deserve it. How do you defend yourself and say, you know what, dude? I got into radio. I just wanted to make $250 a week. I wanted to be able to get a shitty fucking apartment so I could entertain people. I didn't give a fuck about money. I never cared about it. I just had to be on the radio. There was something so much deeper in it for me about radio. My father didn't pay attention to me at all. But when, he, when my father had a recording studio and a guy got behind a microphone, that lit up my father's eyes. The world was important. Those guys were important. When he had Don Adams or Larry Storch working behind a microphone in his recording studio, recording Tennessee tuxedo cartoons, my father had a look on his face. For me, getting on the radio was a bigger thing. My roommate in college was in six-year med, brilliant, one of the most brilliant guys I know, and he's still my friend, uh, this guy, uh, Dr. Lewis Weinstein. 
And I'd say to myself, oh, why can't I fucking have that IQ? I would love to be a doctor and not have to go through. I have to go to a radio station and somehow get people to listen to me and not fuck up. This whole career was filled with angst. This wasn't about money for me. Money was a, a, an important thing for me because I just wanted to be able to support my kids and support my family and be able to have a house. I didn't even know if I could do that. No one knows my struggle, I, and the audience doesn't need to know it, but don't fucking sit there and troll me about money and talk to me about how I'm in it for the money, you fucking piece of shit. And that's where my anger comes from in some of this stuff. Even writing this book, what this book represents to me is a collection of my best stuff, conversations that unbelievably somehow happened. Rosie O'Donnell is sitting on my couch. I have access to Rosie O'Donnell and I get into this heavy conversation with her and I never felt closer to her. And I love sharing this with the audience and having these moments. She's talking about the pain of losing her mother when she's five mm-hmm. and taking a baseball bat and breaking the, her bones in her hand and, and, and just wanted to feel anything but the pain of losing her mother. No one had ever explained that to me before. That was mind blowing. And I'm sharing it with an audience and now I have it in a book. I have that, and that's my time capsule. That's what I'm most proud of. When she was talking about, she'd go to the school nurse with her broken hands, and the woman would be putting bandages on her hand, warm compress and right. warm bandages. She was getting mothering. She didn't have a mother to do that. So she went to the school nurse and broke her own hand. So, fuck. As I tell you that, that's heavy stuff. And to have a conversation like that with Rosie O'Donnell, her sitting on my couch, man, that's, w- that's what I want my legacy to be, these conversations. Well, it's also interesting because before you had that conversation with her, you might be guilty too. Very. Uh, Rosie O'Donnell is just, she's that person. I and was you trolling can, her. You control her. I, yeah. I was troll. I used to get on the radio, and I'm not proud of this. I, I was fucking out of my mind. And I would slam Rosie O'Donnell. And why was I slamming her? And it took me years in therapy to realize. She was a successful broadcaster, comedian, and in movies. And in my little stupid world, there's no room for her. Supposed to be listening to me. Yeah. And I was a jealous, angry asshole. I didn't hate Rosie O'Donnell. I didn't know anything about Rosie O'Donnell. And she miraculously gave me a second chance. I don't know how she found it within her. But she somehow did, and I and I said to her, I, I was out of my mind. And she's become very close to me. I did The View yesterday. I was promoting the book, and I talked about Rosie. And afterwards, I got a text from her. She wrote, I love you. It, it just, I just said, man, I was so fucking crazy. I might have missed out on knowing this woman. Right. And she's so open about even stand-up. She was talking to me, and, and, and again, this is, these are the moments I love in the book. I said, how did you figure, this hurt girl, this, this girl who is in so much pain, how do you become a comedian? How do you get up on that stage? And she says, the first time I got up on stage, it was unbelievable. I had all my friends in the audience. I killed. I killed. And I knew this was my career. Well, every appearance after that, she sucked. Yeah. Richie Man- Minervini uh, at the local comedy place on Long Island turned to her, you know, and it was like, what happened here? And um, she went and watched Jerry Seinfeld on TV, and she took his entire act. She thought stand-up comedy was like... I know this about... Yeah. yeah. She, she didn't realize that the whole point is to come up with your own stuff. She didn't yeah. know. She thought it was like a cover band. Like, yeah, she yeah, would yeah. go do Jerry Seinfeld, and all the comedians <laughs> are going away. But, I mean, she starts to talk about this stuff, and we're having a real conversation, and the microphones are on, but they're kind of not there. That's awesome. I mean, and 
And I didn't even know if I should write a book about this because these interviews have been on the radio, but they took on a different meaning as a collection. Yeah. And I got a chance to say how much you meant to me and, and Letterman and um, even the Harvey Weinstein interview. Yeah. I'm like, man, this guy, his hypocrisy is completely pointed out in this conversation in the book. I said, Harvey, what about the casting couch in Hollywood? Does it exist? He goes, oh, Howard. Oh, no. Right. Of course not. Right. He goes, well, I'm a producer. Do you think if I was sitting there and forcing myself on women, I could do business? Like you get inside this guy's head and now you read it in retrospect and you're like, this guy knew all the right things to say. Oh, it's yeah. Like, it's not like it's he called, was. So, it's called being a sociopath. Like, it's called being a sociopath. You yeah. know the right thing, but you're just saying it. You know, I don't know. It's all revealing. There's something me. you don't bring up in the book. And I think it's a, to me anyway, it's a big turn. And I don't know how you feel about it. But 9-11. I remember on 9-11. No comedians, none of us were on the air. We couldn't be on the air for a while. But you narrated it as it happened in real time and reacted. And I thought of you as you're, you're not a CNN broadcaster. You're not that kind of broadcaster. I think of you as more of a, a late night comedian. I thought Howard's more like one of us. And you were reacting in real time to it. And your response to it's incredibly honest. And I know that you've subsequently played it on the anniversary and it's really powerful and it's hard to listen to because yeah. it's such a painful day. I can't listen to it. But I always thought that that was a moment where against your will, maybe prematurely, maybe you were ready for it, but you didn't want it. You were forced into this situation that you had to take us all through that day. You were on the air and you did. And it, sort of pre it was an advanced look at where you were going does that seem like it's possible i don't know i i, I you know when it happened we were on the air i think if i remember correctly again i haven't listened back to it but i think we were talking about pamela anderson mm -hmm. and how hot she was yeah you know we were really graphically going into you know what it is we might be doing with her or whatever right and that's why so, al-qaeda uh, attacked they uh, were so I, offended I, by your well, interview actually i have the other viewpoint if al-qaeda had strippers and like sex clubs and porno, they wouldn't even be Al-Qaeda anymore. No, if some no. of those countries had that stuff and that freedom, they would actually enjoy living. I I'm think sure. those guys are so fucked. I think I thought our reaction to 9-11 should have been also to drop porn right on their fucking country so that they would. some of these people would be a little less repressed. Right. But all joking aside, it was a horrible day. I'm mm -hmm. sitting there on the air. Someone comes in and says, you got to put the TV on while I'm on the air. I'm live. And I didn't have any thoughts of like, um, you know, I was helping anyone through this or mm -hmm. whatever. I was just, again, I was in the moment. I, just, I was in the moment reacting to what yeah. I saw. And I immediately said to Robin, the first plane hit, I go, this is an act of terrorism. And, it, and everyone was kind of like, no, 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 you don't know that. You know, it could have been, I go, it's a clear day. This is an act of terrorism. And then the second plane hits. And then yeah. we're, and then everyone in the tri state area starts calling me, people who could witness what was going on. And suddenly, I was real reporters were calling in in the sense that pe everyday people who were sitting there were able to report on their feelings and what was happening. And we all shared this together. And afterwards, some people who worked for me said, I have to leave the building. I got to get home. I didn't put any trip on them. I don't think, but you know, everyone was like saying, Oh, you were so brave to stay in the building. I, no, I wasn't. I wasn't brave at all. I was just sitting there and I was sharing that with my audience and it didn't feel right to leave in the middle of this. 
I felt I should just sit there. We had already done like a four-hour show, and I, I, we, we were on the air till then, like noon. We did an extra two hours. But it didn't occur to me to leave. It just seemed like the right place for me that I would be the most useful. Right. And, I, and, and honestly, Conan, I was sitting there in shock. I, I was we, in shock, yeah, and we, I was really fucking angry with these goddamn terrorists. And yeah. I was, you know, and I was reacting, we got to go over and blow them the motherfuckers up. You know, we got to, you know, that's how I felt. But what's amazing is that that's a document now. Yeah. I mean, that is a document. And I think it's probably one of the, for me, one of the more compelling documents. I can't look at the footage of that day. I don't think a lot of us can. Right. I, I still, I lived in New York. I was watching it all unfold from my apartment when it was, while it was happening. Yeah, I didn't know but, what to do with myself. But your show that day is a document, kind of a real-time document of an honest person's reactions as things are laid out. And because it exists, and, and as I said, re- reporters can't say the things that you say. You're reacting as a real person. And I always felt like that day, and I think a lot of us felt this way. I know a lot of us felt this way. Oh yeah, Howard helped us get through that day. You were on the air as it was happening. And the rest of us, none of us could, we were, were back on the air for a week, two weeks. You took us through that moment. And so now it's a document of how a person felt as it unfolded. First plane, second plane, getting calls, shock, anger, speculation. To me, that's... that's and by the way, when you when you get me thinking now, I, I remember... Uh, thinking at the time why are the late night hosts not going on tv yeah why don't they just break format and sit down with america and say we're all grieving right now right and 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 maybe even just instead of like open it up to the studio audience let them say how angry they were i i would you know it's tricky and i know that because it might have then been seen as maybe you were taking advantage of a horrible situation there's a lot of thought there was also no uh there was no network time available everyone was just like flights we were all grounded no one gets on the air and i get that yeah but i was cut and and actually you made me think of another thing two things you made me think of just now david letterman did call me and say hey can i um this was like a year later i don't know i I don't want to even say what what point but he did say hey i'd like to hear your broadcast i i I heard it was great and i heard it was good and i was very proud of that yeah dave wanted to hear it and the other thing you're making me think gee it would have seemed like a natural place. I'm, I'm a little disappointed in myself. It might have seemed like a natural place for me to inject some of my thoughts about that. Uh, when I, I interviewed the comedian Steve, I always get his name wrong, Steve Ranazinsi or something. Do you know, you know who I'm talking about, Steve? No. Steve, um, for years, he was a stand-up comic um, who got busted by the New York Times. He had always told everyone that... He was at 9-11. Yes, he was in the yes, World Trade yes, Center. Yes, I didn't know his last name. And yeah. that's why I put Steve in the book. Yeah. I actually uh, called Steve and said, Steve, would you mind if I put you in the book? Because I know it's very painful for him, but he said, please do. I want people to understand. I told a lie, and, I, and I'm and i trying to get I, – I don't know what I'm looking for, but he said I wanted to come on your show and explain myself. And I almost didn't have him in, but I'm glad I did. Yeah. And maybe that would have been a natural space for me to write about my reaction to 9-11 and being on the air. But even that feels like a little self-serving. Right. And maybe it's just best I didn't write about that. And it didn't occur to me anyway. To, no, to it, it occurred to me that I don't think it needs to be in this book. Yeah. But it felt to me that f- that was the first time that I heard you in a different way. Yeah. And I think a lot of us heard you in a different way. And you could probably go back and look at that day and see 
some of the catalyst possibly yeah. for you thinking, okay, maybe there's more than yeah, you know, strippers it, and, and Pam Anderson. And I, I don't think I drew that parallel. Right. I think really where that started to happen for me, and, I, and this is what I do explain in the book, is psychotherapy. Right. Uh, I still think psychotherapy has a tremendous stigma. Uh, most guys I talk to, you know, they wince a little. And it took me five years. It was suggested to me that I go into psychotherapy by a guy named Dr. John Sarno, who had healed me of back pain. He has a wonderful book. If he, he's now yeah. he's no longer alive, but it's called Healing Back Pain. Yes, and uh, the Mind Body Prescription, and and I became a devotee of his. But he said to me, "You got to um, you got to go into psychotherapy. It's important." So for five years, he gave me the name of somebody, and for five years, it sat on my desk. I just did, was not brave enough to go confront myself. And as Bill Murray says in this book, in my book. He says, um, you know, sometimes we uh, don't want any self-reflection because when we really dig deep, we find the person inside isn't all that attractive. It's mm-hmm. pretty ugly inside. Yeah, yeah. And I love that Bill Murray says that. It's a good piece of wisdom in the book. But um, I know for me, I, w- I, I just didn't know what it meant to go into psychotherapy. Nobody had ever listened to me. No one. I had ne- I never had an adult who listened to me. Yeah. I never had a, a teacher that I bonded with. I never had a, a, an adult male uh, uh, a role model. I didn't have those things. I didn't have anyone I'd ever really had a conversation with who heard me. And as a result, I kind of shut down. I didn't know that you could even have an emotion and, mm-hmm. and think about it. My parents had had such a tough life. I never wanted my, to, to burden my parents with any of my problems. I, I just didn't know from that. It's funny because in the book you mentioned that you went to your therapist and you you did, sh- you did shtick. You, I did. you told jokes. You performed for the therapist, which is hilarious because I completely yeah. relate to that. I, I, I did the, la- the whole thing about my parents. Like, I, I was in there, and, I, you know, and I'm like, you know. Howard, I raised you to be. <laughs> I didn't have the megaphone in the office. I, yeah, but I, love, I wish you had had the megaphone. You're it right. been so- uh, I, I, I should say therapist, hey, I brought a megaphone with me. By the way, I started using a megaphone when I do my mother because, A, it just sounds funny right, that she's right. on the phone. It just right. works, you know. But um, so I'm in the office there and I'm doing all these routines for the guy. I thought that's what you do. You go, you sit down and you tell him about your parents. Yeah. And so I did it in a funny way. Also, and- you were you were doing your job, which is I've got an audience. I've got an hour. You've got to you've got to entertain in that hour. Yeah. And the sad thing for me was I didn't think anybody would care about me unless I kept them laughing. Yeah. You know, I spent a lot of my, my mother was a very depressed woman mm-hmm. with good reason. Uh, and, uh, you know, she, she lost her mother at nine and she went in, you know, my, her, my grandfather tried to send her into an orphanage. They, there was no room. She and her sister were uh, sent off. And so he sent her off with relatives and she didn't have her mother and she was never even told her mother died. She didn't know anything. And my mother really went through a horrible life and my father's might be equally as bad. And so they were very traumatized individuals. But I didn't understand any of this. But I did know when I'd come home and my mother said, ah, I'm going to commit suicide. Her sister had died when she was in her 40s. And I was, uh, I think I was in 10th grade. And I saw a very depressed woman. She's talking about going upstairs and maybe doing herself in. I, and, I, and I didn't know if she was for real or not. And maybe it was just like kind of a shtick. Because like, in my family, no one ever, did, everything was just kind of words. You just kind of talked and people laughed. And, and so I found one of the things I could do to cheer up my mother, I was really good at standing up and doing impressions of all the mothers and fathers in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I would take her on a tour of all my friends' houses and start to do these routines. 
And there was one mother in particular who was a complete phony. I'd hear her yelling through the door at her son. And she'd be like, you know, oh, let's call him Bob or John or whatever, you know. John, you motherfucker! You fucking son of a bitch, you fucking... De-. And then, and she was rather obese, but mm-hmm. she always wore a nightgown, like a negligee. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, I'd ring the doorbell, and I'm hearing, motherfucker, fuck you! And then the door would open up, and she'd go, oh, hello. <laughs> Hi, Howard. <laughs> Johnny's right down. Bob is whatever his name was. Right. I want to disguise it. Bob's right downstairs, and he's playing with the dog. And, you know, and it was just this. And my mother, there was such joy and laughs when I was doing these impressions of the neighborhood mothers and the hypocrisy. She loved it, and to see my mother smile and laugh, and it's one of the reasons I was interviewing uh, Stephen Colbert. Mm-hmm. That's why I chose to put him in the book. Another one of these moments that was so great because. Colbert lost his father and yep. his two brothers in a, in a plane, plane crash. crash. Yeah. And we're talking and I said, when your mother, your mother must've been a very sad woman, a very depressed woman. And he started talking. And I said, how do you relate to women now? When you only see women as people, you have to cheer up. He goes, Whoa, you know, he stops in his tracks and I, and that's why I want people to read the book. He stops in his track and goes, how do you know to ask that question? Mm-hmm. And we started to have a real moment. I go, because I had a very depressed mother and I had to cheer her up. And his reaction to cheering up a woman is different than mine, as you'll see in the book. But it's those moments where if you can, you know, because of therapy, because of being in psychotherapy, I got in touch with how much I had to cheer up my mother. I wasn't even aware of this stuff about what my, what the burden was on me, to get, what I had to carry on my shoulders. But that therapist sitting on a couch, stripping away all my fucking bullshit and hearing me. And knowing my, you know, knowing my children's names, understanding what I was going through after being divorced, really hearing about whatever my pain was in, in life, it blew my mind. And I said, what if I could do that with the people on my couch? I mean, when I'm interviewing the Kardashians, who I also put in the book, it's more about anal and who, you know, who, wh- do they ever fuck white guys? As it should it, be. As yeah. it should be. It doesn't yeah. have to all be heavy. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, some of this stuff is heavy and some of it's light and it's kind of a gamut of what it is. I do. Come on. If most people are being honest, no one really knows what you do for work, right? Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Especially if you're in a, what I like to call B2B. Oh, you know? what, what is that? I'll explain. Okay. That's a business doing business with other businesses. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I call it B2B. It's a little thing. It's also, uh, it's a boy band I'm working on. <laughs> Anyway, fortunately, LinkedIn has a network of professionals who get what you do and you can reach the right people who matter most to your company because they're LinkedIn. Yeah. That's what they do. LinkedIn has over, this is the fun part to say, one billion members. Are you serious? Yeah. That's not, that's more people than are on earth because there are people on the moon using it and Saturn. That's one over 1 billion members on its platform, including 70 million decision makers. God, I'd like to meet a decision maker. Since LinkedIn <laughs> members are regularly updating their work history, you can precisely build a target audience by job title, industry, company, and more. Man, you can reach the right people for your, I'm going to say it again, B2B business with LinkedIn ads. Yeah. Gets even better because LinkedIn will give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Hmm. There you go. Just go to LinkedIn.com slash Team Coco to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash Team Coco. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all sometimes have issues or things we need to talk about, get off our chest. I have that all the time. Don't you, Sona? I do. Yeah, and we need people to talk to. And we carry around different stressors. We carry big stressors. We carry small stressors. Uh, I was raised in a culture where you're supposed to kind of bottle it up, and I've learned over time that that's not the best thing to do. If you do let things rattle around in there for a while without talking it out, it can affect your life very negatively. Well, therapy is a safe space where you can get things off your chest, figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. BetterHelp's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. A lot of people have a barrier towards getting therapy because they think, well, I don't know, I've got to find the person, talk to them. What if I? it's not a good match? I, then it's awkward. None of that. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Conan today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Conan. Go. We're back with more Howard Stern. You know, what's interesting is I've always said, if I could change one thing about myself, it would be to not care so fucking much about what other people think. Oh, it's not, mine is and, a small penis. Oh, that was my number two. Oh, okay. But, you probably have a big um, one. You have a big penis. Stop it. I, I, here, look at you. You're reverting. What are we in? It was this 1995 We again? needed a little. I got insecure that maybe we put some people My penis is, is better than you'd think. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. All right, go ahead. It's, uh, it's, I know. It's no Liam Neeson, but it's, it's better than you'd think. But it's had some damage. Liam Neeson. Oh, it has? Yeah. It's been what happened? Lava. <laughs> you put your penis in a volcano? <laughs> wow. I didn't, I didn't want to hurt my hand. You, you see what happens on that couch? See? It's magical. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever so, put your penis into something weird? I, I, I interviewed a guy who claims he, he put his penis into a vacuum cleaning, uh, you know, the, 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 the kind that's in your house. I'm the, yeah, yeah, exactly. The, yeah, not, the the new the di- not the Dyson one, yeah, the one yeah, that comes right. in the wall. And yeah. I'm like, you fucking moron. That's how people lose their penis. They're yeah. like, are you out of your mind? It's worth it. But you were that's saying the one thing you. that you would that change about That I would change about, about myself is I've always cared so much about what other people think. Now, what's fascinating to me is that I would have probably said to a therapist maybe 15 years ago. I wish I had more Howard Stern in me because he doesn't care and I care way too much. I I really do care about not hurting someone's feelings. If someone doesn't like me, I want to know why, how I can fix it. And I wish I could have that piece of my brain removed. And what fascinated me about the book is you make it clear that you do really care about what people think about you and you have insecurities about it, which shocked me. Yeah, no, I, I, which makes also makes sense. It also makes sense because you're, you have it, you are an empath who, when in the 90s and early 2000s, you're trying very hard to maybe hide the fact that you're an empath. But the reason that it worked for you is that you really are an empath. You are paying attention. I, 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 and you do care what people think. Yeah. In a, in a way, I, I somehow turned that off because the greater good was, hey, you can't afford to show that insecurity. Because this Uber man that you've created, this guy who says, fuck you, can't show any vulnerability. 
And uh, let me tell you, it was not easy because I am insecure. You know, I cared too much about, are people going to go see my movie? Are people going to think it's good? Even to this day, and I admit this insecurity, I've said I won't do it, but I'll check Twitter once in a while. Conan, you'll be on, and we've had this incredible interview, and I'll go, oh, I bet you the people are saying this was the most incredible radio. And you're reading, oh, Conan was so great. Howard and Conan, blah, blah. And then some guy writes, it was so fucking boring, I had to turn it off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man, I'm fucking crushed. But you know, I can't believe, I have a rule. I have people come into me all the time and say, such and such went really well. You should check it out. You should read it. It's a nice thing. I don't read anything. I don't I, blame I you. can't. And I don't think you should be, because we live in a world where if Mother Teresa had been on Instagram or she had been on Twitter and she was literally cleaning the wounds of the lepers. Yeah. And then she went and checked out what people thought. She'd feel the, like an idiot. The fourth comment would be, you're a whore. Right. You know, and yeah. what? Yeah. What and, are you talking about? And you have small tits. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it's like, um, which she didn't, by the way. Uh, no. But when you, when you think about it, you become paralyzed by that stuff. Because when I was on the radio, and I was really bad for a lot of years on the radio, if there had been Twitter around and they go, hey, I just heard this guy Howard Stern on WRNW in Westchester and he sucks. I think I would have been crippled inside. Right. I, you know, I'm crippled enough inside. You know, I love that John Lennon song. You can't hide yeah. when you're. I mean, I really am, and that's why I had such a thin skin on the air because I am so crippled inside. I am so afraid of what people might say. And in fact, I, with the promotion of this book, I did an interview with the New York Times. I did an interview with the Hollywood Reporter. Right, right. And I guess I should read them. I don't even want to read that. I, no, because I don't even want even, to know. Look, let's say Gary came in and told you this New York Times thing came out. This is what, and, and it's the greatest piece ever written about anybody. Now let's I'll say the sentence. Yeah. I would find yes. the most horrible thing. Yes. In it. And yes. I would say this, you know, I got a, a, a with all this book promotion, it, it, a lot of people contacted me and told me they loved the book. Very famous guy wrote me and said, Hey, I love the book. And I love the piece they did on you on CBS Sunday morning. And, uh, I said, Oh, Oh, um, I'm good. He goes, yeah, I did a couple of pieces on CBS Sunday morning and they fucking annihilated me. Well, this got me curious. I said, I got to go watch these things. So I Googled it and I looked at it. They were the most glowing pieces I had ever seen on this guy. They were wonderful. And I wrote him, I go, what are you talking about? He goes, oh, it's probably just me. A lot of people suffer from this. Well, a lot of people have a prism in the front of their brain that whatever light you shoot in there, it immediately refracts and gets twisted. And so to me, it's women talk a lot about body dysmorphia. Yeah. And you'll see these very rail thin women. And if you ask them to trace their outline in a mirror, they'll draw a really fat outline because that's what they really see. And They're they really do. It. And it's heartbreaking. And I, and it's, and it's a heartbreaking, sad fact that that's what they actually see. I think many people in our business have career dysmorphia. I really do. I'm not even oh, yeah. making a joke that you can look at your career and yourself and you you see criticism, you see pain, you see failure. Anybody sees that. Other people don't see that. They're saying, what are you talking about? Oh, yeah. And if so, if someone gives me a, a, an article, I don't read it. And they'll say, no, 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 I'm telling you, it's the nicest thing ever written. And what I do is I give it a lot. I, I ask my wife a lot, can you just read this? And then she'll tell me, it's really nice. But she doesn't say you should read it. She knows that if I read it, there'll be one line that said, 
you know, the host who and you'll st- fixate struggled in ninety. Uh, why? 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 Struggle? What why, do you mean? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, right. No, it's horrible. Yeah. I, it was joyous to have a new book out. Doing the publicity is the most painful thing. And I'll give you an example. So George Stephanopoulos, who I know, I know mm-hmm. his wife Allie, and we we have dinner together. Yep. And we're friendly, uh, unlike you and me. We this is you know we we go to dinner. And uh, maybe our relationship is more pure. I don't know. This is, I think, is pure. Is, I mean, this, this is pretty good right this now. This is better I than, love it. Yeah. I, just, I love you, you right have, now. You want to have food brought in? Because I, I can do it. I love you yeah. so much right now. I'm, I'm just even thinking this. I go, God, Conan's deep, and he gets it, and he's such an interesting guy. And I go, I, I, this is a side of you. I'm glad you have a podcast, because this is a side of you we don't get to see right. uh, on TV. But, but see, in that comment right there, yeah. what I and I'm doing what you would do. I have so many people now that say, oh, my God, I love the podcast, because, and I'll think, shit. I wasted 25 years. But you did. You know what I'm saying? This is just another side of you. Yes, yes. You yes, know what? I, right, that's right. what I'm saying. I'm saying to you, because I know that, that paranoia. Yes, yeah. I'm saying to you, man, this is such an interesting side. The medium of network television doesn't allow you no, to no. have these kind of We would have taken seven breaks by now. Right, and it wouldn't have and happened. It, we it would have, yeah. Yeah, that happened to me on The View. I did The View, and they had to take a break, and Whoopi was about to talk to me about something, and she said, oh, I'm going to ask you that when we get back. And we got back, and she didn't even have time to ask me about right, it. Right. And it was kind of a sweet thought. And it's the same, uh, getting back to this thing with George Stephanopoulos. So I did an interview with him for Good Morning America, and um, it aired. And everyone was calling me, oh, you and George, you were so great together, blah, 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 blah. And I think people think sometimes this is an act or something. I said, I'm not going to watch that. My wife uh, texted me. She was, she was out of town. And she said, did you watch Good Morning America? I said, no, I don't want to. I'm having a good day. I don't want to watch it. I don't want to have a bad day. That's what I wrote her. I said, I plan on painting today. I want to forget every fucking right. thing. And I know there's going to be something there that's going to upset me. And I'm not going to like the way I look. I'm not going to like the way I sound. And I should have done this. And I should have done that. And I should have, could have, would have. And she said to me, no, I'm telling you it's safe to watch it. There's nothing there. I said, there's something there. And and I trust her enough that I, she gets me. She knows how fucked up I am. And she loves me anyway. I'm a lucky man. But it took a lot for me to watch it. And I used to read about Letterman's insecurities. Oh, you know, he'd be throwing things after the show and yeah, all that. Yeah. And I, and I would goof on it, and I said, I do the same fucking thing. I'll do an interview. This is why I loved, when I, in the book, I, I name you as the, my favorite interview because afterwards I wasn't upset with myself. Somehow I felt like we had just hit every single mark in that yeah. interview. Yeah, I'm Christ-like, yeah. Well, I don't know what it was. To me, it was, and, and you know, Spade can joke about, oh, you know, your buddy Conan, he's right, your favorite. Right, right. It, it, it just worked. And then I found myself, whenever you were a guest on a talk show, I don't know, you had done a series of shows later on, I have to watch now because it changed my whole fucking perception of you. I go, this guy's a great talk show guest. And it was funny. I don't know whether it was The Tonight Show I saw you on recently or Colbert or one of them. You were absolutely on the, I don't know, did I write you a note about how good that appearance was? You said it on the air. You talked about uh, me going on Colbert and, and people came and told me and it I was, was fantastic. It was nice to hear praise. But, but it was completely different. You had obviously prepared a couple of stories. You were right. um, you were in your zone. It was all comedy, pure comedy. It wasn't like what we had done. Right. But yet it was equally as fucking great. And so, you know, I I hope people understand all of my guests in this book were great. But for me, it, there was a special connection between us, you know? Yeah. There's yeah. a, no, no. Uh, Just was. Yeah. And, and I, I, I've always, 
my thing is when something goes well, I then don't want to ruin it. So um, I always, and I, this is exactly what I went back to, which is, and I, I said it when you talked to me on the air recently about when you named me the, your favorite guest, I, I said afterwards, and I, I think I said this to you, my immediate feeling is we'll go to dinner and you'll see, oh, I see. And I feel the same way. Yes, exactly. I, I, I say this to my wife, oh, people go to dinner and they're very disappointed in me. And I have gone to dinner with people and then you never hear from them again. And I'm like, oh, I'm such a fucking bore. And I'm, you know, of course they don't, they don't enjoy me. You know, it's weird. I got friendly with uh, Steve Martin, who's my, my comedy yeah. hero. Yeah, I say me in too. The book, me too, yeah. Yeah, I go, I didn't fashion my career after radio guys. I wanted to be like Steve Martin. I yeah. want to write a book. I want to do a movie. I wanted to do it all. I was excited by it all. And he was a guy who could do it all. And I, my perception of Steve was like, oh shit, he's just a super funny guy. It was so easy for him. Again, you fall into that trap. And when Steve came on the show, and, and that's why I included him in the book, he's talking about the struggle he had. It is absolutely mind-blowing to me that he was a writer on the Smothers Brothers yeah. and couldn't even write an intro for them when they asked him to. He couldn't come up with anything funny. So he calls his friend who's funny and he says, can I borrow that joke of yours and give it to the Smothers Brothers? And I was like, oh my God, Steve Martin couldn't come up with a joke? Oh yeah. He has to work as hard as this, at this as I do, as every one of us who he was, tries to make people laugh. He was one of the first revelations to me. The first time I got into big time show business was Saturday Night Live and I was, I don't know, 24. And you get to Saturday Night Live and they throw you right in the deep end. And I, I showed up, kid, Still going through puberty, I think, and they they said, uh, go in and pitch Steve Martin, uh, oh, you know, uh, your ideas. I go into this room. He's sitting there. I had only known him as my idol and the guy with the arrow through his head and the extrovert. Excuse and me. Excuse yeah, me. Yeah. And the guy who changed comedy overnight. And I went in to the room and I saw the most serious, almost seemingly depressed Professor-like. Professor-like, yeah, professorial, kind of like, and I just was, uh, and that was my first education, that people are not what they seem. Right. And that some people, I got to spend a day with John Candy once, and he was John. He was the John Candy I wanted him to be. But Steve, I at that moment, I saw, oh, I don't understand anything. <laughs> I'm, right. just, I'm just beginning to get, and he was in education, but he's another and my, person. And my experience, though, yeah. going to his house for dinner, yeah. I sat there and I went, oh, I shouldn't have come here. Steve's so brilliant. Steve was being so fun. Everything he says out of his mouth, he goes, yeah. that should be written down and preserved. And I'm sitting there going, I'm not worthy of this. Yeah. You know, I'm just not, I'm not good enough. And I remember yeah. Jimmy Fallon was there and Lauren yeah. Michaels was there and and all these, you know, brilliant people. And it's just like, oh, now they see who I am, you know? Now they see. Because, you know, I have to work really hard at uh, putting this stuff together. It's the, you know, but but then I learned everyone else does too. Yeah. It's, it is, it is, no one is that naturally good. And everybody is looking at you the way you're looking at them. Right. So they're thinking. Yes. And, and you're stunned by that. You yeah. think, no, that's not possible because you have, your camera's been going since you were born. So you went through your childhood. You had many, many years of no one knowing who you were and right. not giving a shit. Right. You went through all your different pain. And so it feels like an accident. It yes. feels like I'm here 
the rest of these people are supposed to be here. And I'm not. But I'm not. And I saw that, you know, you started this interview, and I'm going to wrap this up in a second because I don't want to take your, too much of your time, but I, you started it off by bringing up Harvard. And that's the thing that I, I least like people knowing about me. I wish I could go back and people didn't know that I went to Harvard. Because the truth is, I busted my ass to go there. I'm not a gifted, I, was, I had a I'm terrible at math. Wow, that's so, interesting. So I was, not, I was not good at math. My math SAT, and I can prove that I took my own SAT because my math <laughs> SAT sucked. Now you my, have to prove it. Yeah, yeah. My yeah. verbal was good. I didn't feel smart. I've got a brother who's much smarter than me, and I felt unintelligent. So I just grounded out in elementary school and high school. And in a very unappealing way, I worked like a dog. Was your goal to get to Harvard? My goal was to get into a great school. And so I grounded out and I was creative, but I just, I just worked and worked and worked. I would memorize textbooks. I did wow. what I had to do. So I got in there. And when I got there, I immediately felt like I'm the fake. I don't belong here, which is a common feeling there. Yeah. And then over time, I would look around and it took me years, but I looked around and I thought, there's a lot of these people who have no emotional intelligence. Right. They don't know how to tie their shoe. They don't know how to talk to people. They don't know how to interact and be in the world. Some are brilliant. Some really aren't. Wow. And so I get out of Harvard, and then people know that you went to Harvard. And when I, when I first got into comedy, there was an assumption. I remember when I first got the Late Night Show, people thought, oh, the only thing they found out is was Conan O'Brien, a weird name. He worked on The Simpsons, went to Harvard. And people said, oh, it's going to be like a Dick Cavett kind of. <laughs> right. And I thought, no. And then it becomes, oh, they can reduce you. It's one of the easiest ways to reduce someone. Oh, you went to Harvard, which means you probably come from a really rich family. Right. And uh, you're probably, oh, you just were always smart and nothing was ever a problem for yeah, you. Yeah, and I'm guilty of that too because I would think about you and I go, oh my God, that guy's so fucking smart. And, and it's like, what is that really saying? Like, it was the almost like the you shouldn't even be in comedy. Yeah, you should yeah, be a exactly. doctor or something. Exactly. You no, know? I used to get, yeah. I remembered uh, once, I think 60 Minutes was contemplating doing a piece on people that from, were from Harvard that went into comedy and it was going to be sort of like, you know, you, cancer would be cured right now if it weren't a few people. And I wanted to say I would make a terrible cancer researcher. Or you should have automatically been successful in comedy if you chose that because you're so fucking smart. As yes. if comedy equates with that kind of math yes, or science exactly. intelligence. Exactly. It's all, it's all, it's all kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I could see, I could see where people might even just look at you and think you have a chip on your shoulder because you went to fucking Harvard. Who knows? Right. And you know, but, but, but I think that that's what coming full circle. Cause I, I, um, in my head is let Howard go. He's done a full, you've been working all day, all morning <laughs> and I'm going to let you go. But I think what is really nice for me as a long time listener, <laughs> long time fan, <laughs> short time listener, however it goes, right. is that there's this nice evolution I think you can start at the beginning of your career and your career has been studied and will be studied, but people are going to go back and they're going to look at the stuff you did in the 80s. They're going to look at the whole arc. They're going to look at from the late 70s all the way through. They're going to look at the arc. And this book is a really nice place in the arc, but the whole arc is a thing to behold. And I think that you should own that. I think you should I think not that's good advice. I, I, I probably need to hear that. Uh, thank you for that because, again, it's my own shit. You know, I'll have fans who say, you know, that was your, your best radio was the 80s or this or that or the right. other thing. And, and uh, I can't look at life that way. As I say in the book, you have to evolve. 
I, I point this out, the average age of our audience, the um, audience that listens to Sirius XM, 37 years old, listens to me now, 37 years old, back in the 90s on terrestrial radio, average age of my audience, 37 years old. Yeah. And that to me means the show has to change. It has to keep people's interest. It has to change with the times and all of that. I don't, it's not that that stuff was bad. I know what I was out to do. I was out to entertain. I was out to blow your mind. I was out to be this unleashed id. All of those things. And I do own it. It's just that I can't stand to hear it. Yeah, but you know what? It's not your place. You are the worst judge of your own work in some respect. It, meaning it's not your business. As we started out in the beginning of the conversation saying, your job is to be you and do the work and love the people in your life and feel what you're feeling. And this is your canvas and you've done that. And that's your job. It's not your so much your job to say, this is the good stuff. This is the bad stuff. It's just, this is what's resonating with you now, which is fantastic. It's funny you say that because recently I had to make a will. I changed my will mm -hmm. and I was thinking about all this stuff. And I just said, just, just get rid of all of it, you know, destroy it. That's in my will. Just get, get rid of all of it. All the shows, everything, just fucking burn it. You know what I mean? At some point. Right. Um, but, you know, maybe you're making me rethink that. Some of it's important to me. Some of it isn't. But I guess as a whole, it's been one hell of a career. Yeah, it's yeah. It's been crazy. Jesus, yeah, yeah. It really it really has been nuts. And I don't think in, in this whole world anyone was banking on me to someday be sitting here talking to you or... Or, or perhaps, you know, becoming an announcer that had some success and then mm -hmm, went mm -hmm. on to this big career and they made a film of his life. Yeah. No, it just, it, it just is unthinkable, but I, this is a snapshot. Yep. And right now, if I was to say to you and you didn't, you've never heard my show and I'd say, Conan, here's a book, Howard Stern comes again. Right. Uh, this is what I've been able to do at Sirius XM. I mean, this is what in my life I stand most proud of. I was able to sit with some of the greatest people in the world from Paul McCartney, Sia, a music, show business, right. and other people, and say to them, hey, I'm going to ask you every question that I've been curious about. And I revealed myself, and I revealed these people, right. and I think it is a glorious ride. And um, um, yeah, this is, this is how I feel right now. If I could just take this and hand it out to every person I would because this is what this is who I am. Well, you'll make no money if you hand it out. So my, my oh, advice you is... You know, you're like my publisher. Yeah. He let's says, get, let's he get says, this in don't stores. Hand it out. <laughs> we handed out a bunch in Times Square the other day, you know? Are you okay? Yeah. You know, did you get what you needed, Yeah, Conan? Yeah, I got what I needed and... Uh, I have a technique I use on what? my show. What's I'm that? interviewing someone that goes on. It's long and everything. And then I go, okay, listen, we got to wrap it up. Let's review everything that just happened in the interview. And then they feel like... The interview is over. We're reviewing now. And then the best shit comes out. Yeah. We, because now we're not in the show anymore. Right. Now we're just reviewing what happened. Now we're just Let's review. Over. What happened? What did we do? What did you, what is your takeaway from this? My takeaway <laughs> is that uh, you don't lie when you say you're germaphobe. Because right. you, you put the, uh, the liquid jizz on your hand immediately. <laughs> do you want some jizz? No, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have your germs. Um, I, I have a sponsor now. He came up with jizz. That goes on your hand and protects you up to eight to ten hours. Has he proven that? I'm accepting him at his word. Then you're a fool. <laughs> I'm no scientist, Conan. I didn't go to Harvard. I went to BU. Oh, oh God, that's yeah. sad. I'm that's sorry. really sad. That's as um, good as I could do. Well, I was the worst student. 
Oh my God. Yeah, but that's, you know, I mean. I didn't understand education. I, I wish I could go back. Don't you do want to go over. back now? I do. Because I would love, I, my sense of history is zero. I lived in a horrible neighborhood. The, the idea of education, you just survived. The school that I went to was locked up uh, by the government. Uh, it's the only school in the entire country, in the United States, that is run like the prison system. It's run by the state. And so education, I would shit my pants when I walked into that building. Was I going to live another day? Right. And you're fighting and this and that. If I could just do it over and understand, if, if I could have understood how important it is, education, history, the, you know, the but you sciences. do that now. You could, the thing is, you can do it all. I'm playing catch up. I, 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 have, I went to an English teacher. This is funny. I met a guy who uh, I was talking to, and uh, he tells me he's an English teacher. I said, would you give me a syllabus? I want to learn about first start with World War II, everything leading up to And I gave him my and he and he started giving me books to read. And I was like, why, didn't I, why did I waste so much time? I feel like I wasted so much fucking time. It's so negative. That's what oh, I get. I am so when I'm when I'm wrapping up with you, it's yeah. to say that what I have taken away is everything has a negative. I wasted so much time. I didn't know. I fucked up. Yes. I wish I could do it again. I and then I'll get you as your therapist, your second therapist, the one you don't pay. I get you to say, "What a career! What an amazing ride!" Uh, I'm so proud of this book. I wish I could. I could be. But like you that. get you get there, yeah. but then you immediately I, I backslide into. I wasted so much time. I didn't read. You're I so didn't right. know. I was on. I was on the View yesterday. Okay, perfect example. Right before we were about to tape this, I was talking to Will Murray, who's the head writer on yeah. the show, and I was saying, "Man, he says, oh, it was great on the View. You know, it was really funny and blah 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 blah. And you came out and you started talking about where's Julie Chen Moonves and blah, yeah, blah, yeah, blah, yeah, blah, yeah. blah. He loved all of it. Yeah. I said, oh, but I fucked up. He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, at one point, I'm sitting there on The View, and I know all the Yentas there, except they have one new Yenta, and I'm talking to talking to Whoopi, I'm talking to Joy, it's going well, I'm talking to uh, Senator McCain's daughter there, Megan McCain, and they got this new woman there, and she starts attacking me a little bit. And, you know, I handled it. And I said, oh, I should have gotten up from the table, walked into the audience, sat down next to one of the guys there and said, Okay, let's take a break. A breather. What just happened? So far, I've got Whoopi. Yeah. She seems to be on my team. Right. She made no negative faces. Joy Behar, I think I have her eating out of my hand. Right. Megan McCain, I complimented her father. She's in love with me. What's with this one? She's attacking me. Wait a second. All right. I collected my thoughts. Let's go round two. Like Muhammad Ali, I'm yeah, going yeah, back yeah. in the ring. Yeah. And I always thought to myself, wow, if I had done that, I would have broken through the fourth wall. I would have been talking to the audience at home. I would have been analyzing what I was doing right. It would have been great fucking television. And I blew it. Yeah, you blew it. I suck. The whole thing sucked. The whole thing sucked now. So that's it. The, and, and I relate to this because uh, Paula Davis, who's came with me because she's, she's been with me 26 years. Paula she, Davis? I don't Paula know Davis. Paula Davis. Paula Davis is your biggest fan. And just, she came, she's back, she's back there. Is that the listening. woman you do the podcast with? No, no, that's Sonam Obsession. Oh. Uh, who's uh, my, my real life assistant. Oh, and, so who's and she's Paul? Paula Davis is a booker on the show and she's oh, been wow. with me and she's a huge fan of yours, but I will talk to her every day and she says, oh my God, the relentless negativity in your oh, head. it's and horrible. She, and she says to me, it is unbelievable and i'm in therapy yes but 
What's going to be? I say to my therapist, when are we going to fucking help me here? Well, I mean, he has. Don't get me wrong. But don't you admit, don't you admit that, you know, I would say if you want to analyze what we've looked at here, you want to wrap it up. I would say that you have to accept in some way that the negativity and the pain, some of it is the fuel. But how do you live like that? You you're figuring it out. I'm doing it. You're figuring do, it out. By the way, I you do. found you found my, Beth. My you wife found says, Beth. You found you, yes, you found your you, you know. Beth and, is the opposite of me. Right. She is just light. I mean, she can get dark too. But but she said to me, "I've never met anyone so dark." And I said, "Well, how can you love me then?" She goes, "I just do." Yeah. You know, and it it just makes me so grateful that somebody could care about me. She was watching. Um, Again, she watches the appearance on Jimmy Fallon the other mm-hmm, night, and she right. was watching it, and she goes, oh, I'm so happy for you. There's such a celebration of this book, and people just seem to really be getting it and enjoying it, and right, blah, 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 right. blah, blah. And I was like, wow, somebody's happy for me? Like, she's genuinely happy for me? I'm just like- But you know a lot of people are. I, I don't know Well, you that. don't know. Well, I'll tell I you. Think people, I think yeah. this book evokes jealousy. <laughs> I see it. Where's this woman that you work with? Who, 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 who is she? Uh, Paula Davis. Yeah. Do you think she's listening right now? She's listening. Yeah, she's back there. She's. Oh, listening. she is. Yeah, and do she you think she thinks this went well. Do you want to get a critique? But is that us again being insecure? Let's just find to out, hear Paula. What you think? Paula. Why can't we? Wait a second. Why can't we own that this went well? I think it went really well. I was I do very. Too. I was. Uh, I. I had a blast, and I know that oh, Paula. Yeah. Paula will be. This is Paula Davis. Hey, Paula. Hi, Hi Paula. Hi. She is. She adores you. Did it go well, Paula? Yeah, in your amazing. opinion, Just amazing. Amazing. You, will you tell Howard that every day I come into your office, and I make you laugh really hard, really and then hard. what do you say? I say, "What's the noise in your head? I'm not going down this road." <laughs> This is relentless. Ah. Who did this to you? What happened? Yes. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Wow, that's so important. No, and it is every day. She says, the noise, I'm not going to do this with you. You want me to hate you with you, and we're not going to (laughs) do it. Do you think everyone has this noise in their head? I do think everyone has it. Uh, They do, do, right? We're not not unique. We're just exposing it. You guys have higher stakes jobs than us normal people. So I think your noise might be a little bit louder and a little more relentless, but I've come to believe that we all have it. Yeah, because and I, I know I when I was a dishwasher, it was the happiest time of my life. I yeah. loved washing dishes. I just never really felt like I was, uh, I felt actually, they told me I did a really good job, and then I went home. Right. And I was okay with that. Yeah, I, I think, I, what, what you've done, Paula, and I think Paula has given us the button on this, is yes, she is very emotionally intelligent, and I love Paula. She's been with me all through, all through the highs and the lows, and she adores you. She's so good at listening people and knowing people, and she has sort of helped me a lot saying, you know, that tape you do where you hate yourself, and, and I've listened to you now for uh, an hour and, and, and plus, this is, uh, there's an undertow, it's like a wave that crashes, and you have all this accomplishment, and then it pulls yes. back. That is what I hear in you. That's what I feel in me, and I think that's what Paula picks up on. Yeah, you know, you just made me think there's a wonderful woman who uh, runs my company, uh, Marcy. She, once in a while, when I get really fucking nuts, and when when this book was coming out, uh, I was like, I'm going fucking nuts. I have to go on all these shows. I'm going to go on these shows. I'm going to disappoint everyone. I'm going to go on Conan's podcast. I'm going to disappoint him. I'll go on Fallon. I'll disappoint, mm-hmm. you know, just horrible negative thoughts. And she wrote down a series of reframes, which I never, you know, I thought, ah, what is that? I started reading them, and she said, you know, 
and was basically reminding me, you wrote this book because you really believe in this book. You love, where is the love that you had for this book? You wanted to talk about all these people in the book. And I started to read them and I went, yeah, I got to hold on to that. Yeah, yeah. I got to not get sucked into, well, you know, guys and their problems. Um, how are you going to wrap it up? I'm going to wrap it up by saying uh, your job okay. is to continue your journey. Interesting. Yeah. Your Look job. Dr. Conan. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is the Harvard guy yeah. showing off his. The, uh, your job is to continue doing what you're doing. And I think if, I think you have moments. I believe you have moments where you understand how much you've evolved. And you can, even if it's just for a, a millisecond, you can say, good job, Howard. Nice. Nice job. All right. Nice job. Then we're going to end on that. We're going to end on that. Nice job, Howard. Thank it's you, Conan. It's all good. And by the way, yeah. job well done today. Liking you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like that sound. <laughs> I know you do. I know what that means. I know you do. What does that sound mean? I've seen you do that before. That's usually when you have a hot female guest. Yeah, I go. It's the last thing. It's still okay in the Me Too era. You're allowed to go. You can do that. You can. I, you can still do it. I always thought it was a bit much. <laughs> okay right. when howard's turn is telling you to back off yeah it, it makes women uncomfortable uh, howard thank you this was an Conan, absolute great joy to be here with thank you. you good luck with the podcast thank uh, you love you and uh, god bless god and l'chaim hey do you want to do some more review the reviewers sure this is from renee ekd 87 conan is my don knotts when I was 11, I would sneak into the living room to press record on the VCR so I never had to miss an episode of Late Night. When I was 12, I got a homely white cat. I loved him more than anyone in my family did. I named him Conan. Love the podcast. That's nice. Aww. Of course, I always go to the negative. Oh, boy. Do you? She named a homely cat after me. <clears throat> uh-huh. So anyway, that can Homely just... white cat. <laughs> homely white cat. <laughs> I had a white cat growing up. What was its name? Pebbles. Oh, and I named nice. it. I named it Pebbles. And uh, it, I got that cat when I was four years old. Was that your cat or was that the family cat? It was my cat. cat. I wanted nice. a cat. And my dad tells the story that I was maybe three and a half years old. And he was driving in our 1963 Chevrolet Impala. And he was driving me somewhere. And I was so small that my feet just went straight out. They didn't bend over the, oh. you know, the seat. My feet went straight out. And then I said, do you think... I could maybe, possibly, one day, somehow, have a cat. And I had, I put all these, he said he was amazed that I had all these conditional, uh, he started screaming at me. Oh, uh, my God. And the beating that ensued was uh, memorable. No, my dad oh. got me the cat. He, we went to a shelter, and they got me a white cat. And it was my cat. And I remember really just thinking, wow, I'm in this massive family, and nothing's really yours when you're in a big family but the cat was mine. You know, I cool. was my cat. So, and I had that cat for a long time. Did anybody else have their own pet? Yeah. Um, we had two dogs and, um, well, this isn't funny. It's just really tragic, but uh, <laughs> oh, they, uh, God, they were collies. The first one was Rule and he got out of the house somehow and took off and they, we, we lived right near a highway oh, and no. he ran right under the highway and oh. got killed in front of a Dunkin' Donuts. And then we replaced him with another dog as a collie, and his name was Raggles. And when he, the first chance he got, charged right to the same highway and committed suicide, just like the first one had. And it made me think, oh my God. At the time, I thought they would rather die than live with us. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's what I remember thinking. They would rather die than live in this crazy family. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, and both in front of the Dunkin' Donuts. Oh, God, I know. It's terrible. And you have the, and you have the appropriate response. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, welcome yeah. to a very special Conan O'Brien. No, I, I just told you something about my life. I had a cat. We had two dogs that committed suicide in front of a Dunkin' Donuts oh, rather than live another day in the O'Brien house. <laughs> I had a turtle that ran away, and it felt like anywhere a turtle, but there. A turtle can't run away. It was in the middle of the street. <laughs> what, did it get an Uber? No, it was just in the middle of the street walking the opposite direction of our house. Like right. Anywhere but the Gorleys. Yes. Aww. Well. Uh-oh. All no. my pets were happy. Did you, what kind of pets did you have? I had a hamster. We had two dogs. You don't ever know if a hamster's happy. They can't do anything. They're yeah. like in jail and they've taken their belts <laughs> and their shoes away. They can't end their life, you know? They do chew they on the cage and yeah. try to break yeah. it. Yeah, so you don't yeah. know. They're listening yeah. to all the Armenian madness going on in your okay. home. Okay. No, that's not an okay. I'm just saying your family's... I'm sure we're loud. We're lo- oh God, you are very loud. You came from a, a house with six kids. You were loud too, probably. But you make more noise. You alone, Sona, are louder than I think anyone I've ever met. That could be true. I mean, Sona will be on the complete other side of the office, and we're in a big building on a sound stage, and I'll hear her. Talking mm-hmm. so loudly, yeah, and that's your. Is that everyone in your family? Your dad's not everybody. Like that. No, everybody's loud. We're your dad, all loud. Your dad is not loud. My dad is not loud. My mom is loud. Yeah, she's loud. Uh, okay, relax. <laughs> um, <laughs> when I first met your mom for the first time, I hired you when I came out here to in Los Angeles, and you brought your mother by the set mm-hmm. of the show, and she said something. I, can't, I wish I could remember what it was. It was sweet. But she said, I want to meet Amazing American Entertainer Man. Yeah. Something like, like you, that. You, you rock the, she said something like, you rock the USA. Yeah, I want to meet yeah. Man, yeah, I want to meet you. You rock the USA, I yeah, think she said. Yeah, she said something and like remind that. And it reminded me of uh, NoHo Hank on Barry. Oh. Something he would say. You know what I mean? Like, Batty, you, know, you rock the USA. Um, I love your mom. You know that. I know you do. She She's loves great. you too. She thinks you're jacked. What? Sorry, last time that they saw you, they were like, Conan's been lifting weights. Yeah, he I looks do. really I work buff. out. I do work out a lot. And you know what? This has been a theme on the show. Many times, whenever anyone makes a comment about how I'm kind of sexy or I look sexy, you guys go, ew, ew, your mom has sexualized me in her mind. Oh, come on. Ooh. Oh, come on. Did I go too far? That's my mom, dude. Oh, Well, okay. I'm just saying, she's coming home and she's oh. saying, she's saying to your dad, He's jacked. Get out to the gym. Why don't you at the gym? You're trying to do an accent. Yeah, why is Arnold Schwarzenegger what is, what is that her accent? mom? Well, her mom has an accent. Does she not? That's not like that. That is not my mom's accent. Get to get out to the gym. Oh, my Go God. Go to the gym. And into the chopper. Yeah. Go to the chopper. And I hope there's a gym in the chopper. Let's hope there's a gym inside the chopper. Consider the Gil, Gilmore Sassy and get in the gym so you're jacked like Conan. Right? Isn't that sort of what it sounds like at your house? No. And then the gerbils in the corner trying to make a noose. <laughs> I want to get out of here. I want to die. <laughs> Look at the hamster can't kill itself like Conan's dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Should we go home? 
all to our one home that we live in. Yeah, <laughs> you know the, our the, podcast house. <laughs> just for you listening, yeah, we all live. Uh, we live together, and we sleep in a uh, a, a stacked bunk bed. Triple for three. bunk, <laughs> triple bunk. For th- and when we snore, it's in unison, like the Three Stooges. <laughs> When we get up in the morning, we all get out at the same time, and we go crashing to the floor, and then I get up and go, come on, you lame brains. Yeah. All right, let's wrap this up. Yeah. We've got to get to our house. Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, with Sonam Obsessian and Conan O'Brien as himself. Produced by me, Matt Gorley. Executive produced by Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Chris Bannon and Colin Anderson at Earwolf. Special thanks to Jack White for the theme song. Incidental music by Jimmy Vivino. Our supervising producer is Aaron Blair, and the show is engineered by Will Beckton. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you might find your review featured on a future episode. Got a question for Conan? Call the Team Coco hotline at 323-451-2821 and leave a message. It, too, could be featured on a future episode. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend on Apple Podcasts or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Earwolf. Imagine you just got home from work, dinner is ready, wine is chilled, and your man has offered you 15 minutes of heaven in the form of a foot massage. And then he says, your spray tanning session is now complete. What just happened? You found your escape at Palm Beach Tan. Break from the chaos at a Palm Beach Tan near you and leave rejuvenated. Take time for yourself at Palm Beach Tan and take that feeling with you wherever you go. Get up to $25 off your first month featuring Australian gold. Perfect man, not included. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale. Even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch. When it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great.